It's been said uh, multiple times uh, that it's, it's a little bizarre to call this day Good Friday, right? Because in, in one sense, it's, it's obviously good, but in another sense, it's like, it's a cursed day. It's a horrific day. It's like the one day someone who was truly good in the purest sense of the word had the most horrific thing done to them. Nevertheless, as Christians, we continue to call it Good Friday. And in order to do so, you, you kind of have to understand the, the, the inner mechanics of how the big narrative of scripture, like the big story that's going on, works and takes place. And so in order to understand that, you have to go back to the, to the very beginning in Genesis where God creates the first humans, a husband and a wife, a man and a woman. We know those Adam and Eve, but uh, in Hebrew, Adam is, here's a, it's not too hard, Adam in Hebrew, Adam, Adam. But what's interesting is that the root of that comes from a Hebrew word, Adama, which means ground or dirt. And Eve, it's a little bit more complicated, Chava, which is a root for life. And so in one sense, you have Adam and Eve, but in another sense, you have sort of like the dirt man and life woman. Adam from Adama and Chava from life. Dirt man and life woman. And they are put in a garden paradise and they are ultimately given a choice to trust and obey God, submit to his will, and live in harmony with him and have dominion or creation. Or they could disobey and not trust and have it their way. And very beginning in the story, in our story, um, a mysterious sort of serpent figure enters into the scene and begins to, to tempt and to lie. And to make a really complicated story succinct, they end up listening to the voice of the tempting mysterious serpent He tells them, God's holding out on you. He told you not to eat of this tree. Just go for it. He's holding back his goodness from you. And so they do so. And because of that, a curse enters the scene. God himself enters and pronounces judgment. And he places a curse on a number of things. What I want to do is look at those words because the details are incredibly important. God shows up after sort of this first rebellion from from dirt man and life woman. And, he's, and, and, and he says, the Lord God says to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field and on your belly you shall go and dust shall you eat all the days of your life. Okay, now, you just go, okay. It's kind of weird, serpent, cursed to the ground. But remember the names. This, this is incredibly interesting. Adam is dirt man. And why is he dirt man? Because God took him from the ground from the dirt, and he breathed his life into him. So he's dirt man from the ground, but he has the breath of God in him. Now the serpent is cursed, and he is now over the domain of the ground. And what does he eat? Like, what's his diet? Dust. He he eats the thing that God originally raised up life from. It's very interesting, very mysterious. So there's this curse pronounced upon the serpent, and then there's a little optimism, a prophecy of hope. God says, even though there's this curse on you, serpent, I will put enmity between you and the the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. You shall bruise, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. In other words, this woman, the the life, life woman, is going to have a son eventually, at some point. And this son, this son of life, this son of Chava, is going to wage war with the serpent figure. And he is ultimately going to have victory in his war against the serpent. 
So it's this incredibly kind of optimistic, beautiful promise of hope that a son of the Havad of life will come and defeat the serpent. And then God gives pronouncements to both the woman and the man for their disobedience. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. There's going to be, there there won't be harmony between the man and the woman anymore. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Now, got to pause here because there's something that's said at this point time and time again that fails to slowly read the text and actually take it for what it's saying. If you grew up in church, you refer to this passage as the curse or this is where the fall happened and God cursed humanity. Now, who does God curse in this passage? He curses the serpent and he curses the ground. To the woman, he gave a pronouncement of judgment, a consequence to her action, and to the man, he pronounces a judgment, a consequence to his action. But the word curse is only employed for two objects in this event, to the serpent and to the ground, which is really interesting because, um, remember, the ground is all important in this stuff, right? The ground. Now the ground then is said that the thorns and thistles that it shall bring, it's gonna bring thorns and thistles now. So it's a symbol of the curse. The ground is cursed and now very early in the story you have a symbol of this curse, thorns and thistles. This has to stay in your mind. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust and to dust you shall return. So, what do we have in the opening pages of scripture? You have the Adam, who's made from the Adama, the ground, listening to the voice of the lying serpent, and ultimately now is destined to die. He will face death, and in facing death, he returns to the ground. And so very early in the biblical narrative, you have the three great enemies of scripture revealed. Satan, sin, and death. And they're all intricately bound up together. And so they're, they're sort of represented symbolically with like this, this, the snake and the thorns and then picture like the symbol of a grave or, or, or going into the ground. Satan, sin, and death. Three great enemies of old. That's all bad news so far. It's all bad news. But remember... There was also some good news in the, in, in the middle of that judgment, right? In the middle of judgment, there was the prophetic hope that one day, the son of Eve, the son of Hava, will come and wage war and have victory over the serpent. Now, out of that, the Old Testament tradition grows. And there's always a hope, as you're reading the Old Testament scriptures, that sooner or later, this kind of deliverer, this Messiah figure, is going to come and finally defeat evil. And so if your ears are attuned to that, like when you encounter Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and King David, you're sort of always looking like, is this the guy? Is this the guy? 
And sometimes the, scripture, the scriptures will play with you, like especially with Solomon. When you're reading Solomon, the, the rise of Solomon, you're going, this is it. This is the guy. But time and time again, they fail. Now, in the midst of that development of Old Testament history, there's also the development of the Old Testament prophetic tradition. And the prophets begin to paint a picture of what this serpent slayer will look like. What's the deliverer going to look like? Now, what's, what's incredibly interesting about that development is that the prophecies they give are, are often incongruent. They're, they're, they're like almost at odds, in tension. Watch, let me, show, let me show you what I mean. Isaiah 52, 13 looks forward to the one who defeats the serpent and says, behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. And so you, this is like kingly, this is royal language. The servant is gonna be lifted high and exalted. And then you get passages like this. A child will be born, a son will be given, and the government is gonna be on his shoulders. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So picture high, exalted, the government, the nation is upon his shoulders. Of the increase of his, his government, and of the peace, there will be no end on the throne of David over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice, with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So this is a very high and lofty image. There is a coming king who will rule and he will exercise justice and his kingdom will be forevermore. It doesn't get any higher than that when you're, when you're picturing this figure. But then the incongruency. You get passages like this. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and is one from whom men hid their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. So a man of sorrows, a man of grief, someone who's rejected, someone who other people hide their faces from. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. So, so you see it's like high and exalted, lifted up, he's a king of glory, and then smitten, afflicted. He's pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. And we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Remember, we started off saying, like, there's, there's only ever been someone who's truly good in the purest sense. Everyone else, like sheep, have gone astray. But then, where we started, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and be exalted. So you picture the servant who's high, lifted up, exalted, a king among kings, one of power and justice and righteousness, and then someone who is simultaneously afflicted and rejected and despised. It's very difficult to put that puzzle together. It's very difficult to make those puzzle pieces put together a coherent image. Nevertheless, that's the tradition that's developing over the entirety of the Old Testament scriptures. Now, although hope seems dim because every figure that we're introduced to fails time and time again, we enter the first century in Israel and there's one named Jesus of Nazareth born. 
and many people are excited because they think he's, he's the guy. Now, what's fascinating is he begins his ministry by being baptized by John, and then immediately after, do you know where he goes? To the wilderness, to the desert, to confront whom? Our old enemy. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. Do you see the, the little connections? Temptation, eat, eat, eat. He eats nothing. And, and when they were... And that ended, he was hungry, and the devil said to him, you're the son of God, command the stone to become bread. Jesus ultimately says, man cannot live by bread alone, but by every word of God. And this temptation goes back and forth, and Jesus continues to quote scripture to him until finally, this temptation scene ends with this. And Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. So the first Adam fails in a garden paradise. The second Adam, the second Adam, is victorious in a desert wilderness. It says that this Satan, the serpent figure of old, leaves until an opportune time, which is at the beginning of the gospel, and it's really easy to forget about it, but if you're reading it astutely, you're going, well, when's the opportune time? When is this Satan figure going to come back. When is the opportune time? And you realize, okay, the opportune time when Satan strikes is right around Passover in the Holy Week. If you're familiar with the story, Judas betrays Jesus, he's handed over, he's beaten, flogged, tortured, and now the full press of the ancient enemy of old is striking at the second Adam. And it's very difficult at this point, extremely difficult to begin to put these pieces together because if you're you're looking at it with the wrong set of eyes, there's no way this is good. There's no way it's good. And there's no way you see this as like the deliverer. When you're seeing what's happening to Jesus, you're not going, oh, this is the deliverer, of course. This is like the antithesis of the deliverer. This is like the anti-definition of the deliverer. But when you go back and remember, look at like the inner mechanics. How is this story working? How can these prophecies paint a coherent image of one who is highly exalted and lifted up, but yet lowly enough to be rejected by his own people? And then you see the paradox kind of begin to come together. So what do they close Jesus, what do they close Jesus with? before he's crucified. He's robed in purple. Now picture this, purple is the color of royalty and the, and the rich, the noble, the elite. So this is clearly some type of mocking gesture, but you, you, like picture this. As Jesus is being beaten and he's suffering, he is clothed in the robe of royalty. Like that's the incongruency there, that, that, that doesn't add up. The, the, the royal one is suffering. And then what do they put in his hand? Do you remember? They give him a reed. It's, 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 it's like a fake staff. Why? Because it's supposed to be the reed at which he rules with. Oh, you're a king? Here, rule. Go ahead and reign with this scepter. 
And then you begin to see what they place on his brow. And this is where it all like really starts to connect and come together, right? What do they put on his head? They put a crown, right? Composed of our old ancient symbol. The ground that was cursed with thorns and thistles. The cursed image is now made into a crown and put on the cursed man. And then lastly, he will be exalted. He will be lifted high, but not on a throne, but on a cross. And now you begin to see the incongruent puzzle pieces begin to present to us the coherent picture, a picture that was hidden from all mankind from the beginning of the age, because if they knew what they were doing, they would not have crucified him in this manner. Christ is becoming king of heaven and earth in and through his sufferings. He actually is being exalted and lifted up as king. And what appears to be his defeat is actually the plan from the beginning, that he would be crushed for our iniquities so that we could have victory. The Apostle Paul says in Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So you look to Christ and you see the blood-soaked robe corresponding to royalty. You see a blood-soaked staff corresponding to a rightful rule. You see a blood-soaked crown of thorns symbolizing the curse on the ground. And then you look to Christ being lifted high on a cross. And in that, you will either see a cursed man rejected by God, or you will see the love of God made manifest to sheep who went astray. And everyone must choose whom they see. A man rejected by God, or God himself in the flesh come to save sinful men. To make war against the ancient enemies, to defeat Satan, sin, and death by going in and through it. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. And when you put all those pieces together, then Isaiah 52, 13 begins to make sense. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up, and he shall be exalted. What did it say on top of the cross? We read it earlier. King of kings, what some men used to mock Jesus was actually God revealing what is most true. This is God's son in the flesh, king of kings and lord of lords, come to defeat the enemies that we caused at the beginning of the story. So how can we call Good Friday Good Friday? Because he was crushed for us. And that was God's plan from the beginning. He is the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. And in his chastisement, in his stripes, in his affliction, he brings us peace. He purchases peace. And he brings us into the fold. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. But thankfully, there's a good good shepherd with a staff in hand and a crown on his head with all authority in heaven on earth and the power to draw us back unto him. That's why we call this day Good Friday. Let's stand as we take communion.
On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he said, this is my body, it's given for you. So on this Good Friday, we recall Christ giving up his body. It's good for us because it was so terribly horrific for him. And he willfully, willingly laid it down to draw his sheep back into the fold. And so we remember the death of our Lord. And the cup is the blood of the new covenant. And we always say here that when we take this, we are proclaiming the death and resurrection of Jesus till he returns. Good Friday, we focus on the crucifixion and then we set our eyes to Sunday, resurrection day. Remember where our story began. A man was taken from the ground and God breathed his life into him and humanity was born. And now, between Friday and Sunday, the Son of God, the second Adam, goes where? To a garden tomb, back to the ground. But what happens in gardens? New life occurs in spring. New life occurs with the Passover. And so on Friday, we reflect on the death, and we look forward to Sunday, where the second Adam, the Son of God, rises from the grave. And so, Father, we wait with anticipation for Sunday morning, Resurrection Sunday. In these moments as we close in worship and in in praise, may our hearts and minds be fixed upon the work of your Son, what he's done for us on our behalf. May we give our allegiance to him. May we be faithful to him in all that we do. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.